All right, so let's get into it. Our talk radio live in 4K. First up, what's up with these earthquakes, man? All right, let's get into it. Large earthquake has struck Hawaii. The 5.7 earthquake struck the Big Island, Hawaii, roughly 21 miles south of Hilo. There is no tsunami threat at this time. Some shaking could be felt in Honolulu on the island of Oahu, which is about 200 miles to the north. So for more, let's bring in our ABC News affiliate reporter, KTV, KITV reporter, Jeremy Lee. Jeremy, you were there uh, during the earthquake, of course. You're on that island. What was it like? What can you tell us about damage? Sustained. You know, sometimes we get these kind of quakes that last three seconds, four seconds, even north of Hilo where I live and I felt it, but this one just kept going. Nine seconds, ten seconds, you start wondering, should I even be indoors? I'm currently driving on Hawaii Island down towards South Point. Of course, uh, Kilauea, the volcano, is uh, to the south of Hilo, but even further beyond that is Ma'aleu, where is the town nearest the epicenter. So we're going to try to, it's a remote town, we're going to try to find out who's there and uh, how how they felt it there at the epicenter. All right, so this is a uh, not a common occurrence, uh, I gather, and then there's always a concern, obviously, about an earthquake, uh, you know, in, in that, in the ocean, about a tsunami. What can you tell us about that? Well, the USGS, they've uh, put out an advisory that there is no tsunami uh, advisory at this point, that that is not uh, a concern right now. As far as the damage itself, again, because this one lasted so long, we're interested to find out what it was like near the epicenter south of Kilauea Volcano. Now, uh, earthquakes are very common. In Pahala, a town near the epicenter, they have hundreds of them actually in a week because you have magma under the surface that is moving. But one that was this big and that lasted as long as this one is a rare occurrence. Certainly, I haven't felt anything like it uh, since I've been here. All right. Well, great all right, so let's get into the other one now, because this these earthquakes, it's 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 wild uh, what has happened, and I'll I'll tell you in a minute. But I'm going into the next one, uh, the earthquake that happened in uh, Southern California now. All right.
Next magnitude earthquake has struck Southern California, unnerving millions of people. It was centered near Malibu, and so far there have been no immediate reports of significant damage. Let's get right out to KTLA Sandra Mitchell live in Malibu with reaction. Sandra. Sharon, Micah, we are live in Malibu, and this is very near the end epicenter. This is where the shaking would have been the strongest. We've been walking around the Malibu Country Mart this afternoon, talking to customers, talking to employees. Yes, it was definitely very scary for a lot of these folks, but I can tell you there's no serious damage here. Some things started to shake and a few things fell off shelves. We've got some video to show you from inside an art gallery, and I want you to watch the left side of your screen. You're going to see the flowers on the countertop there start to shake and then you see the employees and the customers uh, they start to react they pick up a few things that fell off the shelves here's what others in malibu tell us they felt we were eating lunch and all of a sudden uh, all the bottles started falling off the bar uh it was pretty scary it was insane i uh i looked uh, over here at the tvs and they were shaking I checked in with the Lost Hill Sheriff Station just a little while ago, and they tell us that uh, they immediately dispatched a lot of deputies to go out into the four outlying areas. They checked the roads, they checked the freeway overpasses, other bridges and structures. They checked uh, office buildings, towers, and schools, and they report there is no significant damage, no injuries to report, but they tell us a lot of security alarms went off, and that's what most of the 911 calls were about this afternoon. So again, no serious injuries, no serious damage here in Malibu. We're live. I'm Sandra Mitchell. Back to you, Micah. Now, here's the strange thing about this. All right. All right. Hawaii, Los Angeles area rocked by earthquakes just hours apart. The magnitude 5.7 quake that shook the big island of Hawaii was followed a couple hours later by a magnitude of 4.6 tremor in Southern California. Both Hawaii and Southern California were rocked by earthquakes on Friday. A magnitude 5.7 earthquake struck off the southern coast of the big island of Hawaii, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The earthquake occurred just after 10 a.m. local time, with the Epic Center located a little more than a mile southwest of the town of Pahala at a depth of nearly 23 miles. Preliminary reports indicate that the earthquake was felt as far away as the island of Ohio near Honolulu. Preliminary measurements noted the quake was a magnitude 6.3, but the measurement was revised to be a magnitude of 5.7 soon after. A couple of hours later, the USGS said that another earthquake occurred in the Los Angeles area with the Epic Center located about 7.5 miles northwest of Malibu. Magnitude 4.6 earthquake occurred just before 2 p.m. local time at a depth of 8.6 miles. In this loot video, camera shot looking over to Santa Monica shakes as the earthquake strikes February 9th, 2024. Wow. So what are your thoughts about that? I think there could be a conspiracy about this. What do you think?
All right. So let's talk about uh, these sanctions that BRICS put on the UK and the US. recently after attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. In a startling turn of events, the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, have collectively decided to impose sanctions on the United Kingdom and the United States. This unprecedented move comes in response to the recent missile attacks carried out by the UK and US on Houthi rebels in Yemen. These airstrikes have sent shockwaves through the international community prompting strong condemnation and demands for accountability. To understand the implications and motivations behind these sanctions, we must delve into the context of the conflict, the missile attacks, and the reactions of the BRICS nations. Before delving into the missile attacks, it is crucial to understand the ongoing Yemen conflict, which has become one of the most dire humanitarian crises in recent history. The war began in 2015 when Houthi rebels, aligned with Iran, overthrew the Yemeni government. Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states intervened in support of the government, leading to a brutal conflict that has resulted in thousands of civilian casualties, widespread famine, and the displacement of millions. The Houthi rebels who control the capital Sana'a have been accused of numerous human rights abuses including the recruitment of child soldiers and the targeting of civilian areas. On the other hand, the Saudi-led coalition supported by the US and the UK has been criticized for indiscriminate airstrikes that have caused substantial civilian casualties and damage to critical infrastructure. The recent missile attacks on Houthi rebels are the latest chapter in this protracted conflict. In January, the United Kingdom and the United States jointly conducted a series of airstrikes in Yemen. These airstrikes targeted Houthi military installations and were seen as a response to Houthi attacks on Saudi territory. The UK and the US argued that their actions were taken in self-defense and aimed at deterring further Houthi aggression. However, the airstrikes quickly drew international condemnation. Human rights organizations reported civilian casualties, and there were allegations that the UK and the US had violated international law by targeting civilian infrastructure. The severity of the attacks and the resulting civilian casualties sparked outrage around the world, leading to widespread protests and calls for accountability. In the wake of the missile attacks, the BRICS nations convened an emergency summit to discuss the situation. The BRICS bloc has traditionally been a forum for these five major emerging economies to coordinate on issues of mutual interest, but it has seldom taken such a decisive stance on an international conflict. The BRICS leaders expressed their deep concern over the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the recent missile attacks by the UK and the US. They argued that these actions only exacerbated an already dire situation and called for an immediate ceasefire and a return to negotiations to end the conflict. Furthermore, they stated that the use of military force should always be a last resort and must comply with international law. The most significant outcome of the BRICS summit was the unanimous decision to impose sanctions on the United Kingdom and the United States. 
These sanctions are a combination of economic, political, and diplomatic measures aimed at pressuring the two Western nations to change their course of action in Yemen. The BRICS nations announced a suspension of trade agreements and economic cooperation with the UK and the US. This includes restrictions on imports and exports as well as the freezing of assets belonging to individuals and entities linked to the missile attacks. These economic measures are intended to send a strong message to the UK and the US about the consequences of their actions in Yemen. BRICS nations have also opted to politically isolate the UK and the US on the international stage. They have withdrawn their support for these nations in various international forums and called for the international community to hold them accountable for their actions in Yemen. This isolation is designed to increase the pressure on the Western nations to reconsider their approach to the conflict. Diplomatically, the BRICS nations have recalled their ambassadors from London and Washington, sending a clear signal of their disapproval. They have also pledged to work with other nations to advance a resolution at the United Nations condemning the missile attacks and calling for a peaceful resolution to the Yemen conflict. The BRICS nations have stressed that these sanctions are not intended to worsen the already dire humanitarian situation in Yemen, but are a means of holding the UK and the US accountable for their actions. They have called on all parties involved in the conflict to prioritize the well-being of Yemeni civilians and to work towards a peaceful solution. The BRICS decision to impose sanctions on the UK and the US has reverberated across the globe, eliciting a wide range of reactions from different countries and organizations. Many non-Western nations have voiced support for the BRICS sanctions. They see this move as a step towards rebalancing global power dynamics and holding Western nations accountable for their actions in conflicts around the world. Nations in the Middle East, in particular, have welcomed the BRICS stance. A lot of uh, people will say that, you know, pro-America, pro-military, and they're not understanding what type of actions our, you know, Western military powers commit overseas. Okay, a lot of people have bought into the propaganda of Western media, which is controlled by Israel, and um, they're not willing to open their eyes and to think that maybe the reasons why things are going on the way they are in America is because of what Western military powers are doing overseas. as they have borne the brunt of the Yemen conflict's consequences. Unsurprisingly, the United Kingdom and the United States have vehemently criticized the BRICS sanctions. They argue that their actions in Yemen were necessary to protect their national security interests and the interests of their allies in the region. They view the sanctions as an overreach by BRICS nations into their sovereign affairs and an attempt to undermine their global influence. The United Nations has been called upon to mediate and facilitate negotiations to end the Yemen conflict. The BRICS sanctions have added pressure on the international community to find a peaceful solution. The UN Secretary General has expressed his concern about the situation and urged all parties to return to the negotiating table. One of the key concerns following the BRICS sanctions is the potential impact on humanitarian aid efforts in Yemen. The country is already facing a severe humanitarian crisis, and any disruption in aid delivery could exacerbate the suffering of the Yemeni people. The BRICS nations have emphasized that their sanctions are not intended to hinder humanitarian assistance and have called on all parties to ensure the uninterrupted flow of aid.
The imposition of sanctions by BRICS nations against Western powers signals a significant shift in the global geopolitical landscape. It underscores the growing influence of emerging economies and their willingness to challenge the actions of traditional Western powers. This shift could have far-reaching implications for international diplomacy and cooperation. The BRICS sanctions represent a push for greater accountability in international relations. All right. So, um, that's it for what I'll put out there for the BRICS. All right. It is a, uh, I would say that I am for this move. All right. And the reality is things are going to get worse for Western, for Western society, for the citizens of the West, because of world, Western world leaders who are doing what they're doing. Things are going to get more expensive. All right. Businesses are going to fall apart. Okay. Because of Western powers meddling. And here's more proof of that. Okay, let's talk about the uh, Red Sea tensions the United States has. Okay. <clears throat> with the Houthis, with more strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. wing uh, components such as Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich on the right hand, um, who are opposing these kind of numbers that we're seeing in prisoner exchange um, and are threatening that depending on who the prisoners are and what their numbers are, they would leave the government if a deal is signed with that component in it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he has uh, managed to get into his government, Benny Gantz and Gadi Aydenkot from the center, who are now uh, the stronger political powers in Israel. And um, they have made it very clear that their first priority is the return of the hostages um, and moving along with regulating what is going to happen in the Gaza Strip. So one of the big problems Israel is facing is that the prime minister is not taking a decision as to who will regulate the Gaza Strip. And as a result of that, what we're seeing right now is a vacuum. And for example, we know for a fact that about 70% of the humanitarian aid entering the Gaza Strip goes to Hamas rather than to the population. This is because the vacuum of, of, of um, uh, allowing other uh, components to come in and start regulating and administrating the uh, civilian aspect of the Gaza Strip. So as long as Hamas holds on to that, it holds on to power, which is a contradiction uh, to Israel's um, first goal, which is um, d diminishing Hamas's um, military capability and diminishing Hamas's governing cap capability. So uh, again, a decision has to be made. And uh, one way or another, it has to be made in the next coming days. All right, I've been talking to Helit Barel. She is the former director at Israel's National Security Council. Madam Helit Barel, thank you very much, as always, for talking to We On Wild as One today. Okay. 
if the United States, well, that would be a risk, was to hold Israel accountable for October 7th, getting the information from Egyptian intel saying that Hamas was going to come and attack Israel. You had three days in advance. Okay. Netanyahu ordered the Iron Dome to be shut down. All right. This is all his fault. Hamas is now getting a humanitarian aid. Okay. And it's it, it seems very much kind of like uh, a whole big mess that the United States will be dragged into war. Okay. They already are on war on multiple fronts. <clears throat> but World War Three, yeah, that's the big one. That's the big one. All right. Continue more about the battleground in Gaza. With the continuous coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. In the latest, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has dismissed Hamas's proposal for a ceasefire. Now, Netanyahu ordered troops to prepare to move into the city of Rafah. Like I said, he this is all his fault. He, do, he doesn't care. He just wants a bloodbath. He, he basically sacrificed his fellow people on October 7th to have this war that's going on in Gaza's far south, where more than one million Palestinians have sought refuge. However, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he still sees space for an agreement to be reached here. Right. Blinken says that he warned the Israeli leader against actions and talk that inflamed tensions in the region. Take a listen. What I can tell you about these discussions is that while there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. Netanyahu told a televised briefing at a televised briefing that he'd order troops to prepare to operate in Rafah and that a total victory by Israel over Hamas was just months away. But he warned that accepting the Palestinian group's demands for a ceasefire would not lead to the return of hostages, charging that it will only invite another massacre. In Beirut, Osama Hamdan, a senior Hamas official, urged all resistance factions to continue the fight. He urged caution against Israeli treachery during the final quarter hours of this confrontation. Now, one of the hostages released as part of a temporary ceasefire deal brokered in November also put pressure on the Israeli leader. Adina Moshe said, and I'm quoting here, I'm very afraid and very concerned that if you continue with this line of destroying Hamas, there won't be any hostages left to release. An official from Mediator Egypt told news agency AFP that a new round of negotiations would start on Thursday, which will be aimed at achieving calm in the Gaza Strip. 
Hamas source said that the Palestinian group had agreed to the talks with the goal of a ceasefire, an end to the war and also a prisoner exchange deal. Just last week, a Hamas source said that the proposed new truce calls for a six-week pause to fighting and a hostage prison, as well as more aid for Gaza. Negotiations have continued since then. Now, the Palestinian Health Ministry said the two men were shot dead by Israeli forces in the Nur Shams refugee camp near the northern West Bank city of Tulkar. The UN chief said that he was alarmed by reports of Israeli forces would push on into Rafah, which is crammed with more than half of, half of Gaza's population. Pardon me. Guterres also said, and I'm quoting here, such an action would exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences. Now, for more on this, we were earlier joined by correspondent Susan Tehrani, who sent us this report. Listen to this. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, after meeting with Israeli leaders, says that Hamas militants put forward non-starters, but also says that the United States sees, quote, a space to pursue truce. Nonetheless, Israel's dismissal of Hamas's counter-truce deal was a setback for U.S. diplomatic efforts led by Anthony Blinken himself. He met with Israeli leaders on Wednesday during his fifth visit to the Middle East, aimed in part diffusing tension before a possible Israeli offensive on Rafah, a city in southern Gaza near Egypt's border, where over a million displaced Palestinians have sought refuge. It's clear that despite weeks of indirect negotiations, Israel and Hamas remain far apart in agreeing to a ceasefire framework. Susan Tehrani reporting from New York for We On World Is One. Let's now talk about the other war. Question. So you heard a lot about that, <clears throat> and it doesn't seem like that war is going to end anytime soon. Netanyahu is willing to sacrifice as many Israeli soldiers, risk the lives of uh, many captives, all for his Zionist agenda. Okay, so let's talk about um, the special counsel report on uh, Joe Biden now. Biden, who is on defense now after the special counsel's report on his handling of classified documents and his Republican rivals see an opportunity. ABC's senior White House correspondent Selena Wang joins us now with the latest reaction. Selena, good morning. Hey, good morning, Wit. Sources tell us that the president is fuming over the special counsel's report and the White House is now in damage control mode. They know that the president is legally cleared, but any political damage could last longer. This morning, the White House on the defense, doubling down on President Biden's mental fitness and slamming the special counsel's report. The way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized 
could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated, gratuitous. Special counsel Robert Hurd declined to prosecute the president for his handling of classified information. This, these assertions are not only misleading, they're just plain wrong. But the report describes a president as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory and diminished faculties in advancing age. The president furious at the special counsel's suggestion that he could not even remember when his son Bo died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, wasn't any of their damn business. The White House ripping the report for questioning the president's mental acuity. That part of the report we don't think lives in reality. But Republicans already seizing on the report. Nikki Haley saying the White House is not a taxpayer-subsidized nursing home. Trump runs about even with the enfeebled Biden. He would get crushed by a Democrat with a pulse. As Democrats rush to defend the president on the campaign trail. It was just a smear and cheap shots and just taking things out of context. Trump is going on 78 and the president is 81 years old. Now, the Biden campaign, they are brushing off this report. One campaign official telling me that they believe voter views of the president's age are already baked in. And while there may be some concerns about the president's age, they believe voters care more about the issues that President Biden is running on, like defending democracy and abortion rights. Janae? Certainly a number of issues that voters are talking. Well, there you have it. There you have it. I mean, he can't even remember when his son, Bo, died. Those are important facts. A love, losing a loved one. I don't know. <clears throat> and there's been, you know, uh, instances when he's had gaffes, when he could remember certain things, when he was talking to people that weren't there. All right. So him being fit for presidency, I don't know. That is not something that is, uh, I don't think that will be in his future. All right, let's talk about the Elon Musk uh, Neuralink. Okay, the brain chip. Fair use. Imagine the joy of connecting with your loved ones, browsing the web, or even playing games using only your thoughts. For eight years since founding Neuralink, Elon Musk has been wanting to get inside our heads. We think probably in about six months we should be able to have our first Neuralink in a human. It took six months longer than that, but now Neuralink says a human volunteer has been fitted with implant. It's designed to measure brain activity from more than 3,000 microscopic wires rooted into the brain using a custom-built robot. Nobody thinks that this is creepy. Everybody thinks Elon Musk is a genius for this. I mean, okay, you know, people who are paralyzed, okay, could possibly walk again. All right. That's great. That's that's great. Okay, that's the positive side. But what about the negative side? We already live in a society where your news is censored, real news is censored, okay. We are slowly going into a fascist society. Um, Joe Biden has, you know, wanted to uh, have a social credit system for all of us. Imagine 
the total control the government could have with these Neuralink chips in your brain. Currently aimed at helping people with spinal injuries or motor neuron disease communicate via a computer. It's not a world first. Competitors of Neuralink have already successfully demonstrated implanted brain-computer interfaces, and there are other ways to read people's minds. In this lab at Imperial College, I'm being fitted with a headset that measures my brain waves without scalpels, even needles. So this headset is covered with an array of electrodes that are measuring the electrical activity of my brain indirectly through my skin and my skull. And it's been trained on hundreds of volunteers that are fed into an AI model over here to interpret the brain signals that correlate to motor function, the ability to move, in this case, moving my hands. So that means even a volunteer like me who's never come across this interface before can use it to play a computer game, not by actually moving my hands, just by thinking about moving my hands. The focus of this spin-out company is to help patients regain function following a stroke. And advances in AI may mean wider applications without risky surgery. This is a very exciting field because the non-invasive technology allows for many electrodes to be on the surface of the scalp. And we get information from all of them. And using machine learning, we're, we're able to extract that information in a different way. Elon Musk brings determination, endless wealth and hype to brain science. But animal and human trials bring ethical and technical hurdles that make self-driving cars and See, that's the that's the thing here. That is the thing here. All right. You are having uh, a lot of questionable things to think about these human trials, and when they succeed, what's going to happen? That is the issue here. What's going to happen when you finally make that breakthrough? And then the military wants to be able to control people with these chips. That is something nobody's bringing up those questions. Nobody. People just think it's okay. It's it's perfectly fine. All right. So Let's go into some stuff with Putin here. Remember I said I have, you know, I'm looking at Putin with the side eye now. Let's get into that story. Fair use. But one of the other elements for the success of Judaism in Russia, even though he's not so popular right now in the United States, has been the friendship to the Jewish world of the president of Russia, which is Vladimir Putin. And you have to ask yourselves, why is this so? I heard a great line from a professor of mathematics, Novosibirsk. He told me like this, Putin may not be good for Russia, but he's definitely good for the Jews of Russia. 
in Russia, everything is quiet deals. For instance, there is a lot of quiet deals between Russia and Israel that you know nothing about. And the early meetings between, uh, between uh, Putin and, and Sharon and Putin and, uh, and, and, uh, and Bibi were orchestrated by Chabad. They were arranged. But a lot of the deals, everything, it, it, Russia is a different co- political mentality. And the American political mentality is, is the confrontation works. Now, listen, there has been historical view in this country that the Soviet Jewry movement got the Jews out of Russia. The view that we've had and built Jewish identity in America. No question it built Jewish identity in America. The view that we have, which is a different view, which is that it was not in most cases beneficial for the Jews of Russia. There's another narrative, and that narrative is not the dominant public narrative. And that this secret work was a real key. I was in Moscow in Simcha's Torah night. There were thousands. Remember, Trump has done the same thing, all right? Trump is in Israel's pocket. So is Putin. Thousand people there. There were th- so is Zelensky as well. Thirteen oligarchs in the room. Their net worth was thirty some odd billion dollars. But we're talking here a different kind of world. You know, they house a row of Mercedes in front of the shul. Each guy with a driver and bodyguards, and these guys are dancing inside like everybody else. They run the economy of Russia. The difference is we're the Jewish establishment in Russia. There's no Jewish Federation. We are the Jewish Federation. There's no ADL. We are. That's George Bush Sr. This is George Bush, um, the son. This is Obama, I believe. This is Trump. Yeah, man. Yeah. The ADL. There's no AJC. We are the AJC. Judaism in Russia is run 98% by Chabad. But one of the other... You heard that. You heard that. Let's look into this article right here, right now. Putin fires top official who describes Chabad as a supremacist cult. No reason given for dismissal of Assistant Secretary of the Russian uh, Secretary Council, Aleski Pavlov, but reports noted his controversial statement. Russian President Vladimir Putin has fired a top national security official who recently drew widespread condemnation for calling the Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic movement in Ukraine a supremacist cult, Russian media reported. No official reason was given for the Friday dismissal of the Assistant Secretary of the Russian Security Council, Alesky Pavlov. A spokesperson for the Security Council told Russia TASS news agency that Pavlov was moving to another position, but also gave no details. However, the reports noted the article he wrote in October in which he called the the desatanization of Ukraine, claiming that the country is home of hundreds of neo-pagan cults. Pavlov included in his list of cults the Shabbat Lubavitch sect, which began in the 18th century in Russia and is today a major religious force throughout the former Soviet Union and in Russia and Ukraine in particular. The main principle of the Lubavitch Hasidism is the superiority of the supporters of the sect over all nations and peoples, Pavlov wrote. Though Russia's invasion of Ukraine is largely considered a geopolitical terms, the war has also had religious elements as well, with the head of the Russian church firmly backing the war and referring to it as a sort of crusade. Oh, boy. In his article, Pavlov appeared to be channeling 
this religious view of the conflict. I believe that with the continuation of the special military operation, it becomes more and more urgent to carry out the desatanization of Ukraine, he wrote. Since Russia launched its war against Ukraine in February, the Chabad movement in Russia has attempted to keep itself out of crosshairs on all sides. Its rabbis in Russia have denounced the war and the bloodshed, calling it, calling for it to end, but has also refrained from blaming Moscow for it, leaving the issue of culpability for the conflict vague. Members of the organization have also not so subtly criticized the former chief rabbi of Moscow, uh, Penchas Goldschmidt, who is not a member of the movement for his decision to leave Russia and his community in order to more freely criticize the war and Putin. In response to the article of Russia's chief rabbi, who himself, uh, Lubavitcher, uh, and was once considered close to Putin, penned an open letter to Russian authorities calling for them to condemn Pavlov's remarks. In response to this wave of criticism against Pavlov, his superior secretary of the Security Council, Nikolai Patricius, issued a follow-up statement calling his assistant's comments about Chabad false. Like I said, I had my, I, I really kind of look at Putin a different way now. I really do. All right. So let's talk about this. Uh, let's talk about um. <clears throat> this Arctic zombie virus that they have, you guessed it, brought it back to life for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why to do this. I don't know. Fair use. Tiny zombies that were frozen in Arctic permafrost for thousands of years were recently brought back to life and have produced clones in a lab in Russia. These hardy creatures are deloid rotifers, multicellular microscopic animals that live in freshwater environments. Rotifers have been around for about 50 million years, and in that time, they've picked up a survival trick or two. One of those tricks is cryptobiosis, entering a suspended metabolic state when their watery habitats freeze or dry up. Scientists recently collected samples of Siberian permafrost dating to about 24,000 years ago. In the permafrost, they found frozen rotifers, suspended in a cryptobiotic state. They revived the rotifers, which then began reproducing using parthenogenesis, an asexual process that creates offspring which are identical genetic copies of the parent. By studying animals that can be frozen and revived, scientists can figure out how cryptopreservation could could work with cells from com with more complex life forms of life, such as humans. This is why, why, why do this? What what is the point? What is the point? What is the point? We have to start paying attention, okay? Because. A lot of things are happening that we are not paying attention to. For instance, a lot of banks are closing, okay? PNC Bank, a lot of other banks, okay? Um, we have a lot of celebrities, you know, and billionaires having 
bon bunkers. Okay. They're not telling us anything about it, though. All right. They're keeping it to themselves. That's what they're doing. It's insane and wild, man. And speaking of uh, bunkers, let's talk about this, what Germany is ordering their citizens to do. World War Three, German government orders citizens to turn their homes into, yep, bomb shelters. German newspaper Bild reports that the country's National Draft Emergency Defense Plan has already assigned the construction of bomb shelters to civilians. Okay. Natural News reports, with only 579 functional bomb shelters in Germany, the government is counting on its citizens to convert their homes into a fallout shelters, setting up their own reinforced shelters in places such as basements and garages in case a major war breaks out in Europe. Also, Bill quoted the head of the Federal Office of Civil Protection and Disaster Assistance, Ralph Tesler, is saying that building new shelters by the government is no longer feasible due to time constraints. By April, the ministry is set to complete work on the classified operation plan, OPLAN, the newspaper indicated in the report. As per the draft document, Germany is seen as a transit country that plays a crucial role in delivery of weapons and equipment rather than just a state with an active front line. So soldiers who would be tasked with securing key highways, railway stations, and ports, the government also now relies on its citizens to step up and cover some duties typically assigned to the military and police, including protection of power plants. The preparations come amid a threat rooted in Russian-Ukraine conflict, and the German leadership is looking into ways to boost its arms and increase the size of the Bundeswehr. A secret document allegedly indicated that the German armed forces are preparing for a potential hybrid attack by Russia on NATO's eastern flank as early as February. The confidential document reportedly detailed how a conflict between Russian President Vladimir Putin's army and NATO might arise with events of unfolding month with events unfolding month by month. The culmination involves the deployment of hundreds of thousands of NATO soldiers in the state of the war in the summer of 2025. However, Defense Minister Boris Pistorius, who frequently <clears throat> who has frequently called for Germany to become war ready since becoming defense minister a year ago, warned again earlier in the month that Russia could attack a NATO country, but within five to eight years. He later somewhat adjusted his assessment, telling the media outlet on Friday that at the moment he doesn't see any danger of a Russian attack on NATO territory or on any NATO partner country. However, he stressed that this is just a snapshot of the current situation and there really and there is really no way of knowing how things would turn out in the future meanwhile russia has repeatedly accused nato of fear-mongering stoking tensions in europe the head of russia's foreign intelligence service sergey nashton recently dismissed the claims that moscow's plan to a, an attack on nato as inf as information informational warfare all right Countries use fear to recruit non-citizens into the military. The German defense minister also announced that the country is considering allowing residents without German citizenship to join the military to raise troop numbers <clears throat> from 180,000 to 
203,000 by 2031. A trend like this is seen to have been going on every, everywhere else in the world. Capitals around the continent are debating whether their militaries are fit for modern warfare and the threats posed by countries such as Russia. The army has a chronic workforce shortage with 20,000 new recruits needed every year to maintain current numbers. A job in the military does not have the kudos in Germany <clears throat> in Germany that it does elsewhere, owing to the country's wartime past. In the, United in the United States military, where people can hope to gain citizenship in return for service, participants would be awarded with a passport. Moreover, the United Kingdom's military chief of staff, J Gen Patrick Sanders, General Patrick Sanders, said steps should be taken to place society on a war on a war footing and that the public should be prepared to take up arms against Russia. UK Defense Ministry quickly dismissed his comments, insisting that he would that there would be no return to conscription, which Britain abolished in 1960. Lies. In Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Baltic nations, preparations are already well underway to deal with the potential Russian attack. Meanwhile, Lieutenant General Alexander Sol Solfrank, the head of NATO troops in the southern German city of Ulm, who would be responsible for coordinating the movements of European troops in the event of attack on a NATO member, said the German military needed not only resources, but also the visible resolve to deploy them. Credible deterrence requires a preparation of war and needs to include the population, Solfring said in an annual state of, a state of security speech on Wednesday. Marcus Sauter, the leader of Bavaria and head of the conservative Christian Social Union, said on Wednesday that Germany needed soldiers capable of fighting on the front. In wartime, people are going to need all hands on deck. So I don't hear about there's not going to be a, a reconstruction. Uh, no, 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 no. You, you're going to be desperate. You're going to need everybody, every able-bodied person, all right? I mean, <clears throat> Zelensky is even recruiting people with Down syndrome. Yeah, you heard me right. He's recruiting people with Down syndrome to fight in his war against Russia. You don't believe me you can look it up um it's sad there was a video on twitter of a ukrainian soldier with down syndrome and his fellow soldiers were bullying him but that's how low uh Zelensky has sunk all right i want more news about the migrant crisis let's talk about that <clears throat> okay a second. Here we go. Cross the border for a better life. Legal migrants organize crime syndicate preying on New York citizens, New York residents. But now they are walking out in handcuffs after police say their American dream was to commit crime. Anything you want to say for yourself? How did these migrants end up on the wrong side of the law? Police say it did not happen overnight and that they are organized criminals accused of being a part of a citywide robbery pattern. Migrants. What did I say? Criminals and organized crime is coming over here. All right. This is really nothing new because under Obama, you had MS-13 coming, coming to uh, 
America. And the crime was so bad that they've even assaulted a senior citizen. All right, I'm sorry. They didn't assault a, assault a senior citizen. They assaulted a girl who was in a wheelchair, just lifted her up, threw her on the on the on the park bench, and you know what? You know the rest. Let's keep going. These presidents don't care about you, left or right. All right. There's even been uh well, I won't even get into that. When I have the article about that, then I'll get into it. Preying on vulnerable New Yorkers in New York City, over 60 victims committing crimes as robberies, grand larcenies, purse snatches. Pix11 News, the only camera inside as police plan and prepare and execute a search warrant. Police say a ringleader of the group has been recruiting migrants who recently arrived in the city to do his dirty work. He even had a so-called inside man able to hack into cell phones. Believe it or not, that he has his own IT guy in there, apparently, breaking into the phones. Police also believe the group is responsible for committing violent crimes. They're using stolen mopeds to ride up behind innocent New Yorkers to steal their cell phones, their purses. This surveillance video police say shows a victim holding on to a purse, the thief on a moped dragging the victim. Chief of Detectives Joseph Kenny tells us this is more than disturbing. What message does this send to anyone, whether migrant or not, who believe they can commit crime? We're not gonna tolerate this. This is an organized criminal enterprise where the cell phones are being stolen from orders. Police arriving to this apartment building on Bronx Park East before sunrise Monday, where the suspects allegedly rent rooms inside an apartment. Once police hit the apartment door, they say the migrants inside immediately tried to get rid of evidence, throwing stolen cell phones out of their apartment window. So far, this group is accused of at least 62 crimes. Police are also looking into whether or not the men seen on this surveillance video attacking two police officers in Times Square are also a part of this same group. So let's go get these guys. Mayor Adams. Mayor Adams is at fault for this. The main criminal here is Mayor Adams. Let's go get these guys. Yeah, let's lock. Mayor Adams, put your hands behind you. <laughs> I'm sorry, yo. These Democrat, um, these Democrat government officials, okay, you're behind this. You and Brandon Johnson and everybody else who wants to think illegal immigrants have a right to be here with no documentation. They don't go through the proper channels to become American citizens, no background checks, nothing. He's a criminal. Right along with these people. So is Mayor, um, so is Governor um, <clears throat> Kathy Holchel. She's a criminal too. She's the one that wanted, uh, what is it? Uh, how you put it? Uh, concentration camps at one point. NYPD officers to tolerate violent gangs whose members are illegal migrants to make the police look good. 
New York City resident released a video on X, formerly known as Twitter, revealing that the New York Police Department has been given orders to arrest violent illegal gangs because the cops do not want to look bad. Guys, the violence here in the last two weeks in New York City has gotten so bad. Basically, all the migrants have created little sub-gangs according to where they have derived from. The Colombians are sticking together. The Venezuelans are sticking together. The woman said in a clip, she said that her friend, who is an NYPD officer, said that the, that the superiors ordered them, do not make us look bad. Don't arrest any of them. So my friend this weekend, who is NYPD, and he's telling me how crazy it is. And they have direct orders that they can't really arrest them, migrant criminals, unless it's a serious crime. Meanwhile, you got citizens who live here, and they jaywalk, and the cops are like, take that. <laughs> take them in. Let's go. $3,000 fine, she ranted. On the social media post. See what she got to say. Guys, the violence here in the last two weeks in New York City has gotten so bad. Basically, all the migrants have all created like these little sub gangs according to where they have derived from. The Colombians are sticking together, the Venezuelans are sticking together, and the assault and the murder rate has just gone through the fucking roof. I saw my friend this weekend who's NYPZ and he was telling me how crazy it is and that they have direct orders that they can't even really arrest them unless it's a serious serious crime isn't that fucking sick your nypd and your boss is telling you listen don't make us look bad don't arrest any of them i mean isn't that fucking sick meanwhile you got citizens who live here and they jaywalk and the cops are like take that piece of shit in let's go $3,000 fine. I mean, it's wild. So basically in the tents right now, there's one specific story that stands out a little bit. Last week, this man from Venezuela was waiting on the food line to get their food. And he tried to like, you know, hook up with some girl who belonged to a Peruvian guy. The Peruvian guy got mad that, you know, he was trying to mack it to his girl. And then he stabbed them in the fucking neck. That was it. He's dead. Goodbye. And that's just like, you know, the tip of the iceberg. What do you think? It's not going to continue? This is what's going on here. This is what's going on. An internet user commented on the post. They have learned that they can do anything in New York City and get away with it. Criminal gangs will take and will take and take until they take in apartments and homes. Another comment blamed what is happening to the to the kind of leaders Americans are installing into office so you're getting what you voted for and so now you're now surprised you voted for biden and you wanted to be you wanted to be a sanctuary city so please enjoy you're all going to receive hundreds of thousands of new relation new residents as we ship them to you from texas in the next few weeks he said napwp meanwhile said that of course mainstream media once again won't pick up this information we have been getting reports of immigrant crime coming in from all over the country, and none of it is making news media, the user said. All right. Not only did some of the illegal aliens who commit crimes evade arrest, but those detained were released thanks to the city's lax enforcement and sanctuary policies. And it is as if the Big Apple law enforcement never learns. Over the weekend, NYPD, which recently ordered police officers not to arrest migrants to keep keep on looking good for the public was attacked by a group of legal migrants a group of at least 12 migrants were congregating and being disorderly in times square near one of the many hotels new york city has converted into house illegal aliens according to the police investigators a group of illegal migrants most residing in city shelters were gathering 
in that area to commit crimes. The NYPD officers approached to break up the disorderly group, but a skirmish quickly broke out in full view of the startled tourists and other onlookers. Graphic video shows the group of illegal aliens kicking and punching the officers, sending them to the ground and injuring them. One of them, one of the illegal aliens even stole the officer's phone, which has yet to be recovered. The criminals fled, but the cops have arrested six of them. Of 10 men, seven have criminal histories ranging from robbery to petty theft. The five arrested suspects were all released without bail because New York City District Attorney Alvin Bragg did not ask the judge to impose bail, even though each migrant's offense was bail eligible. One of them, John Boda, was caught smirking and giving the middle finger to the waiting news cameras as he was set free. The other four boarded the bus to, to the border town of Calexo, California, after giving fake names to a nonprofit providing tickets. Wow. And this is what's going on. Meanwhile, cops revealed that the sophisticated high-tech crime rings is operating in New York, too. A group of moped-riding migrants. Yeah, I read that part. I already know about that. But this is what's going on, man. This is what's going on. And NYC. My city. Sorry about that. My city. All right? I mean, remember playing Streets of Rage. All right? That's what we're having. We're having gangs out there. Different types of gangs. Colombians, the... Uh, Peruvians, Venezuelans, it's going back to the 80s. New York City is going back to the 80s. In the, in the 80s was a very dangerous time to be a New Yorker. All I can say, protect your loved ones, protect yourself, stock up on food. It's getting dangerous out here. All right. And no, Trump is not going to help you. He works for the elite, <clears throat> just like Joe Biden. Other than that, anything you want to know about this channel is in the description box. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Later.